I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode two, Sacred Art, More Important Than Life and Death. And David, you say that art isn't a matter of life and death. It's much more important than that. What do you mean by that? <laughs> well, I'm using a, a quote um, that here in the US is attributed to Vince Lombardi, the coach of the Green Bay Packers. He said, football isn't a matter of life and death. It's much more important than that. But as an Englishman, I would contest that. It actually comes from the Liverpool FC manager in the 1960s, Bill Shankly, uh, who said that about football. Uh, soccer was our version of football. Um, but the reason I, I used it is that I really wanted to stress the point that sacred art is, uh, in the context of the faith, is not simply permitted. Um, it, it is actually mandated. The church has said we must have art in our churches. Um, it's not an optional extra. It's not something that's nice to have. It's something that really must be there because it is crucial to the faith. Uh, and I'm going to, do, going to argue that it's not just... Uh, it's, it's crucial to the retention of the faith and that if we let this go, uh, the, the faith of the church will uh, decline of the people in the church. So let's just start with a basic definition of sacred art. What distinguishes sacred art from other art? I would say um, that uh, it's art that has a specifically religious purpose is the way that I'm using it anyway. So that might be devotional art. So it could be art that we have um, just in our homes that, uh, or it could be art that is uh, there specifically to, as a focus for prayer in our personal prayer lives. Um, and then the highest form of sacred art is liturgical art. So art that is meant to be in our churches. We can have devotional art in our churches as well. But uh, liturgical art is there so that it harmonizes with our worship of God in church, especially. Um, and then also, in our, if we pray the liturgy of the hours at home in our icon corner. But the, the liturgical art is the highest expression of this. And you said a second ago that sacred art is not only permitted by the church, but it's actually mandated. First of all, where would the idea come from that art is not permitted? Um, where does it come from? Well, uh, the a lot of Protestant churches, for example, would contest the idea. Um, and then uh, in the past, in the history of the church, uh, this, this idea was contested uh, right the way through uh, the early years of the church, but especially culminating in the great iconoclastic period, the the eighth and the seventh centuries. Uh, icon is just a Greek word which means image, so it's really meaning uh, art, really. Um, but iconoclasm is when it, uh, icons were actually broken; they were smashed um, because they disagreed very, very strongly with this and. Uh, why would they do so? Well, because they, they felt, and I think the, the Protestant iconoclasts as well, for example, the, the reformers in England in the Elizabethan period, uh, felt that uh, veneration of images uh, was equivalent to uh, worship of graven images, which is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. So when they saw Catholics venerating or kissing a, an image, for example, they thought this is the, the especially of a saint, <laughs> um, then this is something which uh, is forbidden in the Ten Commandments. We would say that isn't, that's not correct, but that's where the idea comes from, I think. I ask it as kind of a leading question because I had this uh, sort of period of questioning or, or struggle with this question myself when I was uh, converting to Catholicism, where there are all kinds of you know, you can find forums or websites, but you really, you don't need to go any further than scripture to, at least on the face of it, get this idea that maybe the the prohibition of, of worshiping images or worshiping idols, uh, you know, deaf 
statues, deaf carvings uh, that that can't hear or, or speak or you know answer prayers. When you see uh, Catholics, it seems in particular among Christians, having this special role of artistic imagery, imagery and, and sculpture within their their churches, uh, you could get the idea that maybe there's been some sort of a uh, uh, straying from the Word of God, and that this is uh, a da- dangerous territory. <laughs> yes, I. Um, th- there's a few things to say about that. So. First of all, it's, it is often contested that the Jew, Jewish worship um, d- didn't have any images at all. Um, now, we don't need to justify, as Christians, we don't need to justify it simply by what the Jews did, so I'm not doing that. But um, it's used in order to undermine the case. Now, I don't think that's clear at all. In the Bible, uh, the, the commandment is there, but immediately God... Um, it's. Uh, ordered, mandated the creation of images as part of the Jewish worship. So certainly some were allowed. And my understanding is that it's the uh, false images of idols that was banned. So the worry is that the Israelites, because they'd just come out of Egypt, uh, where there was lots of worship of false gods in images, uh, that they would stray back into that habit, which they had just done very, very quickly, with the golden calf in, in the desert. So it, the, the prohibition is against that, and especially strong for the Israelites because of their tendency to do that because of their background in Egypt. The other thing is that I don't... Some, no doubt a historian could correct me on this, but I'm not aware um, of the fact that whether we know for certain what Jewish synagogues or the temple look like with regard to images. Um, so uh, I don't think we have any, any left. What, what we, we can say is that there are synagogues from the, early, the period of early Christianity. There's one in Syria, for example, called Dos Europos, I think it's called, um, where there are images portraying biblical scenes from floor to ceiling. There are frescoes. Um, and they could have easily been in a Christian church at, at the same period. Um, so... Uh, it's certainly true that in the in some synagogues in the uh, that period, and I think these date from the third century AD, there were images in the Jewish worship. But as I say, we we don't uh, justify what we do based upon what the Jewish worship is. We right. we, we certainly have, draw on that tradition, but we we did things that were specifically uh, mandated by the church. Right, but I guess if someone is assuming that that God is unchanging and that uh, throughout time he reveals himself in ways that are consistent, then if there's this prohibition on uh, certain kind of images, but not another kind of images, we would want to understand that distinction a little bit better. So you said that immediately he mandates that they create certain kinds of images. Would that be things like, uh, you know, the Ark of the Covenant, the, the angels holding up the, or what, what is that? that you're yes, the, the Ark of the Covenant. There's, uh, and, and I forget the exact details now, but the, the uh, ex- exactly that. The, there are, there are uh, details given in the book of Exodus, I think it is, on the, the, uh, the Ark of the Covenant, and, and there are images there. Okay. Let's situate the conversation a little bit within today's world. Uh, you are concerned that the Catholic Church has been kind of failing in this regard to fully use art to to the extent possible um, and and that that the worship uh, the liturgy suffers as a result um, what what is kind of the, the the situation that we find ourselves in today well I would say that in the Catholic Church we're just coming out of um, another period of iconoclasm within the the church um, and let's talk about that first iconoclasm this uh you know yes. the word has been used to be you know anyone who's kind of uh a contrarian or or against the the uh the dominant view but at a particular time in history this was the seventh ecumenical council there was a specific group called the iconoclasts uh who were they yeah so um the uh, issue of uh, whether or not we have images in churches 
was really only finally sorted out dogmatically by the Seventh Ecumenical Council, which was 787. So this dispute went on for a long time. We, and we'll, we can talk about how it was eventually resolved. Um, but the icon is just a, simply a Greek word for image. And then I don't, clasm, I don't know that I'm not a Greek scholar, but it basically means those who dis, wish to destroy images. Um, those who uh, want images are called iconodules. Uh, dulia is a term for uh, veneration. Those who worship images, uh, rather uh, venerate images. Mm. That's a good, I should make that distinction. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah, it looks like I just looked it up and classed, as an iconoclast, it's a suffix meaning something that breaks. So an okay. iconoclast is someone that breaks yeah. icons and there were literally people being killed over this issue yes and this is the the the, the I assume the, icons destroyed churches with icons broken and, and yes and um and then and this, again this was repeated later with the protestant reformers for example in europe certainly in england uh, you could also it, point to isis in the middle east going yes and, and blowing destroying art exactly ancient. so for those who are against it, this is a serious issue, and uh, they can see that um, it, it influences people in a particular way that they don't like, and the church uh, has decided that the right art influences people in a particular way that we do like, and is very, very important. Um, and with regard to the current situation, uh, we've had a, a period where uh, the art has been uh, there's been a lot of destruction of images. The art we've seen in churches has been very poor, I would say. Um, and it's especially noticeable, and clearly this is a personal opinion, in the last 50, 60 years that um, images have been removed. But I would say that in part that is a response not just to the uh, the use of art, but actually to the very bad art that in many cases that was there in churches beforehand. Uh, there has been a, a problem in the um, the culture of faith of the church for maybe 200 years or something like that. The, the, and this relates to the connection between worship and art that uh, I think is so important. When they're not in harmony, the art does become superfluous to worship. And uh, it just be, worship itself just becomes a cerebral uh, process, um, maybe involving actions, but it doesn't engage all the senses in the right way. And I think that's what had happened uh, prior to this period where a lot of the art was cleaned out in the 60s, for example. Okay, so 787 AD, this is when it's decided at the Seventh Ecumenical Council that a sacred art is not only permitted, but absolutely necessary to the faith. And you say that this was a, a bitterly fought battle. Um, you know, there are martyrs, people who went to their death yes. defending iconography and the idea of iconography. Uh, and those who opposed them were, were the ones using violent force in order to suppress it. Just out of curiosity, do you know of any examples the other way around where uh, someone who was... Uh, I don't. I, I, I mean, there are bad people everywhere, so I can't, you know, I can't believe it didn't happen and it wasn't used as propaganda. <laughs> but I don't. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Okay, so let's talk a little bit about the culture uh, that how the culture is impacted by art and sacred art. Uh, what is the nexus in, in your mind between the two? Well, um, I feel that um, sacred art is important because it serves very powerfully um, to nourish our worship because it helps us to engage um, both all the senses in our worship um, and deepens our perception of what it is we're actually worshipping. It, it, mm. The role of art in church is to give a visible sign of the things that we can't see. So the Lamb of God, behold the Lamb of God, we have a little disc in front of us, God is really present, but that idea is reinforced if you have um, an altarpiece behind which not only highlights the uh, by contrast for example the presence of the blessed sacrament so we can see it 
um, but also illustrates what it is by showing a lamb on an altar, for example. Um, and so through the senses, we can, we can relate more directly the what you might call the abstract or invisible truths of what's going on. Um, and this is very important because what is happening here is that through an image, which we know is an image, we know that, that, that painting is a painting, it's not the reality itself, but in our imaginations we make that jump from image to a reality hmm. that exists uh, in our imaginations, as I say. And that um, faculty, that use of the imagination is very, very important in uh, the retention of the faith and then also uh, if we want to evangelize it's something we want to encourage in uh, in the world around us and we, we can talk about that a little bit later how that might be done um, I'm thinking that maybe one way of illustrating that is if we go back to what the council actually said the seventh ecumenical council I'm just going to um, summarize it but it really established this, this idea of connections between things that are perceptible and things that, uh, through our imagination, we uh, truths that we understand in the way that it justified uh, the use of images. Now, the background to this is that, uh, first of all, uh, because it's so important to the justification of images, uh, there was a lot of uh, thinking that had to be done with regard to the nature of the person of Christ. Um, so Christ, and so this was sorted out, I think, by the 6th century or something like that. So mm -hmm. not long before, actually, the, 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 this was disputed. And a lot of the early heresies were about the balance between the divinity, if you like, and the humanity of the person of Christ. And so the eventually uh, the church uh, resolved this by saying that uh, Christ is one person, but two natures, uh, perfect God, perfect man, but in one person. And uh, so we have the three persons of the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and Christ is both God and man and has two natures. What that means then is that um, we are told by St. Paul, for example, that uh, Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God. And we know that we can see Christ was perceptible. He was visible, he was seen. And uh, historically, um, he, he arrived at a certain point in history. So that just does change things. That, that's why Christianity has its own uh, unique um, grasp of the truth, I would say, because it believes in this historical uh, moment as well. Um, and so, because we can uh, actually see uh, the person of Christ as man, it, it was felt that it was legitimate to uh, actually represent the image of uh, Christ as man. Um, and then uh, the idea that through an image we can perceive a reality comes from, for example, the words of St. Paul who says that uh, Christ is the image of the invisible God. Hmm. Um, and so there are, there's, there's, what it's establishing is this principle that through an image, we can distinguish between the image and the reality. But, when we, but through that image, we can acknowledge the reality that's beyond it. Um, and so there is a connection. And so it requires a jump in our imaginations. And so those who paint sacred art have to be aware of that, that the person who looks at it uh, must always be aware that it's an image. It, mm -hmm. ca it can't be so naturalistic. And this is a topic for a future podcast that we are content with it. It must always create this slight dis dissatisfaction so that we make that jump to the reality that it portrays. So that's the, that's the first thing, that there, an image is distinct from the prototype, the, um, the reality that it portrays. But through the image, we can make that jump in our imaginations. The second thing is this idea that if we're venerating an image, um, are we worshipping an inanimate object? Um, 
And the answer is no, that uh, we are, through the image, worshipping the person portrayed, if it's, if it's God. If that, and the question then is, well, is worship appropriate? And the answer is, well, yes, if it's God. And they then said, well, what about the saints? What about the mother of God? Um, do, do we worship those? If we have an image of the mother of God and somebody kisses it, what's happening there? And they say, well, it's, it's the same as the, the uh, degrees of respect that we give these different people. So God um, is worthy of the highest respect, and that worship, in, we would say in English, is, is due to God alone. I think they use the Greek word uh, latria, if that's how it's pronounced, uh, to distinguish between that. Um, and then um, dulia just means is a lesser form of respect. We, in English, we use the word veneration that we give to saints. And then because Our Lady is the greatest among the saints, uh, she has uh, her own little classification called hyperdulia. Um, and so there are two things going on here. There is this hierarchy of being that is respected. And we, we have to acknowledge that in the, in the way in which we give respect. And, of course, this then means that we can go out of the context of sacred art and say that legitimizes me having a photograph of my uh, members of my family. And, you know, I might kiss the photograph. And that doesn't mean then I'm worshipping the members of my family. It means that through the image, I'm giving the love and respect that is appropriate to members of my family. It sounds like there's a subtle distinction that maybe is made possible by the, I don't know if it's the incarnation or by, by this new concept of, uh, of, of Christ as the image of the invisible God, where maybe because we are so steeped in a modern culture that has been shaped by a Christian worldview, we can no longer even get back into the mindset really of worshiping idols. I feel like there is always this kind of disconnect when I'm, uh, you know, reading about uh, the, the worship of idols in the, in the form of a statue. I don't think that I know anyone or I've ever encountered anyone who has been tempted to run after strange gods in that particular way. Even here in the Bay Area, you know, people <laughs> are not usually going into temples and, and kneeling at the, you know, the altar of, of Baal or, uh, or something like that. Not to say that there aren't, you know, many forms of idol worship in different forms, you know, whether yes. it be uh, addiction or disordered passions or, uh, or, you know, celebrity worship or any, any number of things. Worshiping your sports team or whatever. Right, yeah. right. Foot, football isn't a matter of life and death. It's much more important than that. <laughs> exactly. That would be yeah. a, a good example of modern idolatry. But, uh, but this subtle distinction that comes about, you're saying, as a result of this kind of new d uh, distinction between image and prototype. Was that, do you think, a gradual realization for the church? Or, or you know, Paul uh, had this distillation of it uh, early I, on, but I, it, took yeah. or, it took 800 years before the church actually defined their teaching on images. Yeah, I, I don't think, well, the, the development of the precise theology was gradual, um, but I think this, the innate understanding of it was immediate the, the, or, or quick. The, the images were produced, uh, became part of the tradition very, very quickly. Um, now, the, there is one little problem here in that uh, because it was a persecuted, first of all, a small religion initially, and then it was growing and was persecuted, um, then artists could, and by its very nature, art is something which can be, you know, is evidence of a faith if it's done well. Um, there were certain uh, reasons that uh, artists were, might not have been so inclined to produce it in the early church. But nevertheless, we have the catacombs. We have clear evidence that art was produced. Um, so I think that it's, it was very quickly part of the church's tradition. Um, it's the heresies which developed uh, and alongside that, which the church then had to bat away, had to deal with. And, it, and with all these things, they, they define truth very often in response to people countering what is 
just the practice or the tradition of the faith and has been. And that's what happened in this case. Uh, just to come back to your point about the, the, the fact that in the modern world, there doesn't seem to be an inclination to worship graven images, false idols. Um, I think that's right. Um, and I think that's, that has crept into the Catholic faith. I think that's why we have a problem today. Uh, in the church, in that people tend not to do it, even if they have art in churches. It's, it's, it becomes a, um, a, a decorative backdrop, um, but it is not. People don't engage with it um, quite as strongly as they, as they used to. There, 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 I'm not saying it's absence; it's clearly there, and especially in devotional practices. Uh, but it's not there as strongly as, as it ought to be. As to the reason, I think. In part, it's because of the new dualism, if you like, of the secular world, the modern era, uh, which tends to separate body and soul, for example. So um, if you asked a lot of people today what we are, what a person is, they would say the essence of a person is their thoughts and feelings. They, they tend to be dualist um, and actually focus on the spiritual more than the material, even though in other ways they're materialist, um, because they might look to science to define truth, for example. But the, the, they have this strange sort of uh, dichotomy of view in that a person is essentially his thoughts and his feelings, uh, and the body is really part of the external world uh, if, to the degree that we believe it exists. And I think that might be what is creeping in, um, and so why the, the heresy of adoration of the golden calf, as you say, isn't, even in the Bay Area, where you, the, probably there are examples just about every heresy, I haven't seen that one. This brings us back to the question of culture and how culture and our view of art influence each other and kind of uh, dovetail maybe. Um, so what do you think are the, the manifestations of the, the lack of uh, a veneration of, of art, uh, kind of approved art in the liturgy and elsewhere? Well, I think uh, I would say that this became most apparent to me when I went to an Eastern Rite church uh, where they still have iconographic art in the iconographic style and there is very strong veneration of art still. And so in the context of the liturgy, of the worship of God, every time, for example, the Mother of God is mentioned, everybody turns to the icon of the Mother of God and prays to her through her image. Uh, when uh, her son is mentioned, you see people swivel and then they turn and face Christ. Um, and I was struck by this by looking, visiting um, actually Eastern Rite Catholics, Byzantine Catholic homes and some Orthodox homes, uh, even grace praying before meals. Uh, there would be an icon of Christ in the dining room and everyone praying to the Father. They might even just do the Our Father, but they would turn and face the icon of Christ because Christ said, those who have seen me have seen the Father. So there is this connection that um, through Christ we can see the, the, the Father in some way. Um, I don't think we understand fully the mystery of that. It's, it's connected with the mystery of the Trinity. But nevertheless, they would engage. When I go to Catholic churches, and I'm sure there are exceptions, Roman Catholic churches, um, on the whole, even those that are, I'm talking about those that are pious, so I'm not talking about liberals who don't care about anything. Um, I'm thinking of those who are genuinely concerned about the rubrics and the faith and orthodoxy um, with a little o. Um, I don't see very much engagement with images in the course of the liturgy itself. Um, the, there isn't the incensing of the, 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 the saints when they're invoked. Now, the reason for this is that I think, in part, this is a hangover from what it has existed prior to the Second Vatican Council, and in part what it was trying to redress. Um, because the art, it's almost become a, um, a lost practice. The art we see in churches, 
does not uh, work in harmony with the liturgy. It tends to be devotional. A lot of the art that was thrown out was devotional art. In other words, it isn't related to the liturgy itself. It's, it's, it's related to things like the rosary or other devotions, which are very good. But um, if those replace rather than support what the central activity, which is the liturgy, then the good becomes the enemy of the best. Um, now, the, I would have said the answer was not to throw everything out. It was actually, you might have improved it. I mean, a lot of it was kitschy stuff, I think, but not all. Uh, but what you'd want to do is make the art once again relate to our worship. And it's never going to be something that... Um, really uh, works with our worship until the practice of the worship of God engages with it. So, for example, every time we mention the Father in the Mass, let's look to Christ. And it's something that I've trained myself to do. It's try, most churches at least have Christ on the cross there. So every time we address the Father, uh, Father, we ask, you, you hear this, look to Christ, because through Christ we see the Father. If the Son is mentioned... Then again, I look to Christ. If Mary is mentioned, I turn to the statue and I try and develop these habits. Um, the same thing, this is one of the reasons we, I wrote the book, The Little Oratory, was to encourage this through uh, liturgical prayer at home and the liturgy of the hours. You know, I, I talk about this a lot. Um, to try and once again to uh, encourage this engagement of the whole person, posture, singing, incense, so you've got some smell and sight. Um, now that's what I'd like to see again. And once we do that, then the whole of the culture uh, will be formed um, in, in the, the same pattern, if you like, which is reflected in our worship, when our worship is good and the art is in harmony with it. Okay, so all of the liturgy you write, the actions point symbolically to heaven, uh, to a heavenly reality and pictures stimulate that faculty in us yes talk more about that okay so it's again through this idea of through an image we can uh we can perceive a reality and the catechism talks about um the language of sign and symbol so it's not just the art but the very um things that the priest does uh they are a reenactment of historical moment of course uh, but it's also a participation in something which is uh, uh, presented uh, here in the church that is um, an, a, a permanent reality, a, an eternal reality in heaven. Uh, and really, it's it, what what we're doing is participating in a heaven, the, the heavenly dynamic of the exchange of love between God and His angels and His saints in heaven. And we step into that supernaturally. We're in time and space, so we do things sequentially, and then we have to go away and do work to to live. <clears throat> but all of this really uh, is compressed. All the good that we do is compressed into a single moment in eternity. Um, and the liturgy is trying to reveal this to us, as well as <clears throat> actually allow us to participate in it. And the more we develop our instincts for sign that what we're seeing is a, a perceptible manifestation of an invisible reality, a heavenly reality, the more those realities will be real to us, the more it, uh, it will be part of our faith. So this, the symbolism and uh, as another term, iconology, which is... Uh, what, what you know it seems like there's a whole field of study and you could spend your entire life studying the symbols within art and images but most people have to go about their daily lives their work what would you say to them as kind of a, a primer or where could they learn more without necessarily needing to study for for years in school and along with that maybe talk a little bit about how you came to learn about these things where your interest came yeah. from and how it led you into uh, your current profession? Well, the um, it, it depends at what level you want to learn. I, I would say that this is why scripture is, is so important. Um, the first thing is that, uh, that, actually I'll take a step back, that the, the greatest tutor 
here is the liturgy itself. And so what would be the best thing is if part of their um, initiation and part of the ongoing education, uh, the phrase that's used is mystagogy, the, the deepening of the mysteries of the faith for people in the church, is that these things are taught so that it should, we sh our instinct should be there. It should be something that is uh, apparent to us at some level, or some innate level anyway. Mm. But it does no harm to draw our attention to these things. And for me, that would be one of the primary concerns of preparation for the faith um, so that people understand that symbolic language. Now, um, connected to that most profoundly is, the, is Scripture, is the Bible, which uh, tells the story of salvation history. Um, but uh, that is a history which um, symbolizes each of our personal journeys in faith, if you like. Uh, the, the death in baptism, the spiritual death in baptism, the resurrection um, with Christ in confirmation, um, and then uh, the partaking of the divine nature by which we are, um, through the Eucharist, uh, become part of the body of Christ and in a sense bodily and partially resurrected. Uh, and that will happen fully, of course, in uh, one hopes um, and at our final end. But this is a, a personal journey that each of us follows and is described for mankind in uh, the events of salvation history. And so I would, if, if I had to prioritize education, religious education, it would be scripture that I would, mm. I would communicate. And then through that, I would connect it to the art. The art encapsulates it when it's done well. Those um, uh, mysteries, those truths, um, some of them in... Uh, an embodiment, for example, of baptism, that you have the baptism in the Jordan, but a lot of, that will include details that speak to what baptism is for us as well, not just the historical moment. Uh, but then others are just depictions of the, the historical account of what happened in the Bible. But we need to be, the more that we understand what we're looking at, then every time uh, we see something happening, we... we we are engaged in the liturgy, this story of salvation history becomes real to us and we look around and we're reminded. And the great thing about uh, visible images is that if we contemplate them, if we think about them, um, and then all the truths that we see in them and we understand from them, when we see that image again, they're all present in that moment. And so through that, there is this sort of there is this mechanism by which um, a whole body of truth can be um, communicated to us. Um, it's not simply that it contains it and we see it instantly, but the, the more that we pray with, the, with images. So um, if we, for example, the mysteries of the rosary um, are aspects of salvation history right, through the life of Mary, if we did that with with images, when we go into a church, every time we saw that image, all of that meditation and contemplation and thought would be presented to us in a second. And in some way we would see it. And it's just like when we see some someone we love. Uh, all that we know of that person is somehow there when we see when we see a sight of them, especially if we haven't seen them for a while. Um, it, it's it's a it's as though all that we ever have ever known about them is compressed into that mm. moment of reacquaintance with them. And that's the special value of, um, of visual imagery. It compresses into a moment something that is learned over time and makes it present in that eternal moment, which we step into, if you like, supernaturally uh, in the Mass. I'm thinking of the cliché expression, a picture is worth a thousand words, and I think I've also heard that people who paint icons are called icon writers. Oh, yes. And you have some of that in your background. How did you come to write or paint icons? <laughs> well, it's, it's interesting. The, the, um, first of all, the thing about writing, it, it, that, that is sad. Um, although I think it's a little, 
part of the, I, I think it's part of a sort of an artificial mystique of icon painting that's mm. developed in the last 20, 30 years or something. I, I believe it comes from the fact that the word to write and to paint in Greek are the same. And so um, it's only something that occurs in translation in English. Um, and so it's, it's, it's part of the... Pr- propaganda by some to differentiate icon painting from other forms of sacred art um, so I, I I don't really I don't mind if you call it painting um, I think it's a little even my teacher who is orthodox Aidan Hart he's he's when you ask him he says well I think it's a little bit precious you know as far as I'm concerned I'm dipping a paintbrush in paint and I'm putting you know I'm painting so why does that demean painting as an activity but nevertheless it is interesting that words and pictures are associated as you say in the Greek language and I'd I'd love what you just said painting is worth a a thousand words Um, so I've forgotten that what was the second question your Uh, background with icon oh yeah so um, the way that I came into all of this is that uh, I actually uh, when I came into the church I decided what I wanted to do and we talked in the last podcast about discerning my personal vocation and meeting this guy David and I wanted to be an artist and um, I looked at the art of the church and in fact I wanted to do a gothic style I like Duccio or Fra Angelico something like that and um, so I Uh, was uh, trying to work out how to learn that style and there was nobody painting in that style. So uh, in the end, what I had to do was look at styles that were similar and I started then to look into iconography and uh, as in the the style that we tend to associate with the Greek and Russian church today, although there are many Western styles of iconography historically. but not only did I learn how to paint, I was in learning how the method by which they taught me to paint and to paint in a particular style so that then I could uh, try and teach myself to paint in a Gothic style. Um, and all of this um, is beginning now to appear in the various books I'm writing in these podcasts and the Way of Beauty uh, blog that I've been writing for several years. Um, and then also the Master of Sacred Arts uh, program uh, tran- uh, passes this on. And it's interesting that at the heart of that, we have a lot of scripture. Uh, Father Sebastian Carnazzo, who's a Melkite priest, a Byzantine uh, Catholic, Greek Catholic priest, and so understands how the images work with liturgy very well, um, and also the scriptural content of the images. Um, so they're fantastic classes. They're, they're both art lessons and scripture lessons. Um, and I think that that's one thing that we could benefit from the West is looking at how the Eastern Church has preserved the imagery of uh, salvation history in its, in its icons. That's the iconology. That's the, the study of the symbolism of the actual imagery uh, of the Church. Yeah, there seems like there's so much more that we could get into on the specifics of how to benefit from or how to you know deepen your your worship through the use of images uh, for someone who's just getting started they can check out the way of beauty blog uh, just today you yesterday you put up a post called how to pray with sacred art and again to bring it back to this question of culture uh, you use an example of, you have an image of, uh, that's, I don't know who, who painted this, but it looks like there's these really heavy slabs of paint, and it's a hideous image, the, the <laughs> ugliest colors that you can imagine, and it's supposed to depict the Virgin Mary. <laughs> um, clearly, there's, there's no shortage of art and images around us. You know, you go on the internet, you're bombarded with images, you drive down the highway, there are billboards, uh, and even in the, the fine museums, you know, you see images that are not necessarily conducive to holiness or to getting into the mindset that you're talking about, where the, yes. the reality is, is reflected through the, the, the image. Um, so again, kind of take it back to uh, culture and you know, how people, wh- what do you say in this article about, uh, about various kinds of art and uh, how they 
can impact our lives and, and the culture more broadly. Yeah, so the it, it is important that uh, we're talking about an art which in some way is rooted in image, that this is, uh, that we can look at and say, oh, I know what that is. Um, having said that, uh, we are trying to, uh, as I've said, make it clear that it is an image, it's not the thing itself, so mm-hmm. that you build in certain elements of discontent that, that nevertheless the, the image is attractive, but it takes us, it, it provokes an interest in the reality that is beyond it. So that, that is vital in the liturgical art. And then in the art that we see in the wider culture, we would want to, what I would want to do is let the stylistic elements that develop in the liturgy appear in the, in the culture. So you have buildings which are based on certain aspects of church architecture, for example. This is historically what always happened. Um, now, I'm not saying that every building should look like a church. It's got to be appropriate to what it is. But in some way, things are derived from and pointing to the highest human activity. That's true for all that we do anyway. Everything points to the worship of God uh, in reality, in, in the Christian worldview. So why not the visible signs and artifacts that are connected with those lesser activities? Um, now, the, one of the things that I, I talk about um, is this idea that there is a hierarchy of activity and a hierarchy of being, um, and that we can think of the... Uh, things being graded if you like there is the good the better and the best and this uh, was used by Thomas Aquinas as a proof for God the idea that we see degrees of goodness around us in things and it leads our mind to if you like to to the pinnacle which is not visibly perceptible is not visible to us but it, it suggests to us that there is a highest, a best, uh, that all of these things point to if we follow that ladder of hierarchy, uh, which is the tip of the pyramid, if you like, and that we call God, that there is an ultimate uh, good. And Thomas Aquinas thought that this was the most powerful um, argument for the, um, for the existence of God. Um, now, I was reflecting on this, and I don't know that it would convince many people uh, today. Um, we could try, and we could sort of try presenting that argument. Um, Summarize the argument again, because yeah. I'm not sure that I would necessarily be able to re- recapitulate it to someone who um, asked me, what is what is David saying with this greater uh, orders, hierarchy? How does art point toward... Okay, so I will make the connection with art, but what what Thomas said generally, and it's actually a short paragraph, and I don't have it with me, it's a shame, um, that what he said was that um, when we look at the world around us, we see um, degrees of perfection, but we don't see anything that is perfect in itself. Uh, But the fact that there are degrees of perfection in all that exists around us leads our mind to, um, in our imaginations, if you like, by connection, by analogy, that you would say, to that idea that there is something which is perfect. Um, and he would say that all that exists, therefore, comes from the being itself, that it's a participation in being. So although logically, in our minds, we climb the, the scales, if you like, and then grasp the idea that there might be something that is perfect. Hmm. What he says is that actually, in practice, what is happening is that all those perfections that we perceive around us, all those degrees of perfection, derive what is good from what is perfect. They participate in it. And this idea of participation is quite abstract. I mean, it's difficult to grasp the idea that the... um, that something can be derived from something else without depleting it. So Mm -hmm. that our being comes from God Mm -hmm. um, and the fact that we exist comes from God, but we're not sucking being out of God. He he is infinite. Um, And so the source of all this is the pinnacle. Um, Even though we see it as the end of our train of thought, it's actually the beginning of all that we see. 
I think I have the paragraph that you're referring to from the Summa by Thomas Aquinas. He writes, The fourth way is taken from the gradation to be found in things. Among beings there is some more and some less good, true and noble and the like. But more and less are predicated of different things, according as they resemble in their different ways something which is the maximum. As a thing is said to be hotter, according as it more nearly resembles that which is hottest, so there is something which is truest, something best, something noblest, and consequently something which is uttermost being. For those things that are greatest in truth are greatest in being, as it is written in meta, uh, met, met, metaphysical, I don't know, some one of his works. Uh, now the maximum in any genus is the cause of all in that genus, as fire, which is the maximum heat, is the cause of all hot things. Therefore, there must also be something which is to all beings the cause of their being, goodness, and every other perfection. And this we call God. My thought when I'm reading this is it uh, where it might be offensive to some people or hard to stomach is that it, it creates a hierarchy of value where we can say that this piece of art maybe is you know intrinsically better than, than this other piece of art which yeah. goes against the relativism that you well, see in a lot of places you see, i think i think that's exactly right um and i think the reason that um modern society tends to eliminate the idea of objective good of hierarchies of being of the fact that there are things, some things that are better than others, and it isn't just a matter of opinion, um, is because instinctively people know that when you see, when you believe that about the world around you, it naturally leads us to a faith in God. And so I would say that the power of this argument, it's not so much something that will convince somebody to believe in God. And, and actually, I'm not sure that that's what Thomas intended anyway is that it's more an observation of a mode of thinking w with those who have faith. And if we can develop that, it, that analogous mode of thinking, whereby we associate one thing with another that is participating in some way in something which is greater than it, uh, then we are priming people for faith in God uh, in other ways. They're, they're they're open to evangelization, it will also retain the faith in the faithful. And this is what sacred art does. It, it develops that analogous form of thinking. Through the image, we see the reality. We have these degrees of perfection in worship. Um, and it's, I just think it's very interesting that those, um, the same people who don't believe in God are offended by what you might call the outward signs in our culture that actually are a reflection of what St. Thomas describes. Hmm. And I think that, in fact, they understand, whether at some level, deeply and passionately, and they hate it, that it points to God. And because they hate God, they want to destroy it. Um, and I think the shame is that Christians haven't pushed back against this, this uh, a false egalitarianism, you might call it. Yeah. The desire to make everything the same and not distinguish between even men and women <laughs> right. it, it, according to nature. Um, is Once we start to recognize this, then that leads us naturally to a faith, is what I would say. Yeah, and in the context of art, I'm reminded of a verse from Scripture. It's from Matthew chapter 6, uh, the lamp of the body is the eye, or the light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, or if if, you, if your eye is sound, your whole body will be full of light. So there's a sense that what we look at can influence what's going on in, in our interior state. Yeah, brilliant. I hadn't thought about it in quite that way, but you're, you're right. that The, the whole of the cosmos um, is... Uh, is a sign of God. Um, but of course, the idea that man has a special place in the cosmos, mm -hmm. the environmentalists, or some of them, will react against. Why is that? Because immediately there's a hierarchy of being. The nature, if you like, with the rest of nature, man is the pinnacle of creation. And that suggests then, because we know we're aware of our own imperfections, 
that there's a degree of perfection higher than that. And so all of these things, uh, yeah, as you say, it, the, these messages are sent to us very powerfully. And the, the cultural Marxists, if you like, de- understand this deeply. That's why they want to destroy a culture that reflects hierarchy. Even hierarchy in society, natural respect for people in certain positions. Um, there are two other articles on the Way of Beauty blog that I want to insert plugs for. One of them came up on my Facebook feed earlier this week, and the title is Don't Concede Ground to Cultural Marxists, Beauty Does Have Utility. And the featured image is a building. Uh, I don't know where this building is or, or what it is. Do you know what that building is? It's, it's a very uh, ugly building. I mean, it's, it almost is interesting, but it... But it looks like something out of a sort of dystopian science fiction novel. Yeah, it's somewhere in Europe. I don't know, actually. I just pulled it off Google, but it, it jumped out at me. Um, yeah. yeah. Uh, but I, I maybe took a little bit of issue with the wording, beauty does have utility. Um, you know, does beauty have to have utility? Or, Well, what I would say is that um, it's, it's not a separate thing that we add to anything. It's something that comes, is present when something has utility. So we might quibble and say, well, beauty itself is a property of something which has, which is built according to its ultimate utility. Okay. And, and so beauty is, the, is our perception of that. But the point that I'm making is that, um, that when something is truly useful, in other words, it has the utility, it will be beautiful. Mm. Um, so it's not a and the reason I said don't I don't want to concede ground is that um, one of the the, um, mottos of modern architecture is form follows function Mm -hmm. Um, so you don't want to have anything that's superfluous to what it's used for and the result of this with many critics of modern architecture would be uh, would be people they would look at it and say well this is why we have such ugliness Mm. and they 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 respond to that by saying well it's because they're utilitarian they're just thinking about what it's useful they're not thinking about things beyond its use and i'm saying no no it's that isn't the problem the problem is a diminished sense of utility that um, ultimately when you take into account the fact that man is body and soul and you can't separate the use of anything from his ultimate end it must be in harmony with his spiritual needs as well as material, um, even if they're not the major consideration, in some way we must take into account that a place has to be comfortable to live in, for example, and um, will respond. We, we respond to it in a particular way. Um, beauty is the sign that uh, it feeds the spiritual needs as well as the material, um, appropriate to what it is, um, and so. What I'm saying is I don't want to concede the ground that you go, as some critics of modernity would, by saying that we go beyond utility. I say, no, no, this is fully fully useful. Everything has a purpose. You don't do anything unless it has a purpose, and that includes making something beautifully. This is uh, relevant to the project that I have going on in the driveway of the convent right now, a floating <laughs> platform for the Sacramento San Joaquin River Delta and I hope that I can make it something beautiful but it is intended to be a a place on the water where you can get some perspective on the land and do so in a kind of contemplative and and prayerful way. I'm still deciding on what the island will be named but I think that maybe Intercession Island uh, because it's it's sort of located at a um, a, a festival, a floating festival that has many different strands, and there are, you know, there's there's the do-it-yourself island. There's the people who will be basically having a an electronic dance music party for the whole week. So I figure that uh, you know it needs all the sort of intercession that it can get, and I hope that will be my role. Uh, <laughs> but we'll, we'll talk more about uh, how to how to beautify the island uh, offline. <laughs> yes, a conversation about seasteading. Very happy to do. Yes, uh, seasteading the, uh, the the long term vision for for floating floating communities 
but anyway, to get back to to art, um, they're, they're I think it's a, a powerful idea, kind of coming full circle that those who hate God sense something in in uh, in art that they want to destroy, and in, in beauty in particular. Uh, that extends into the culture, that extends into the natural hierarchy in society, you say, uh, in the family, in government, etc. So uh, that, that seems to be, to me at least, the, the, the link between art and culture is this natural hierarchy that you think exists. Um, within the context of scripture and, and kind of the, the, the radical gospel that Jesus comes to preach where a lot of things seem to be kind of inverted. You know, the last will be first and the first will be last. Uh, there, there's the parable of um, uh, a, a man who, or who is brought in from the, the street to, to the wedding after all the, the special VIPs that the king initially invites uh, turn down his, his invitation. And this man is said to not be wearing the proper garments for the feast. Uh, and so he's thrown out and cast into the outer darkness where there's weeping and gnashing of teeth. And it's a pretty stunning parable. At least when I first read it, it really kind of shocked me out of my complacency. But I always struggled with kind of what to make of this parable in light of the fact that Jesus himself was, you know, someone who, who walked about without a possession to his name and, and wearing uh, garments that you would assume would not be fitting for for a wedding feast. Uh, and we can imagine that there might be some people today who uh, would feel excluded from, uh, say, a, a, a you know formal liturgical celebration because maybe they aren't feel like they're not dressed appropriately. And this was something that uh, in the process of editing the vision for you, where you made a just kind of a side note about uh, your uh, your mentor, David Bertwistle, who who dressed in a in a manner that was befitting a gentleman. Let's just say he he, he <coughs> took pride in in his appearance, and uh, that was something that you took away. That when you go to mass, you should put on your quote unquote Sunday best. Um, where does that idea come from, and and how would you respond to my sort of objection that you know? Obviously, if you, if you have the means, um, it, it wouldn't be appropriate to wear something schlubby to mass. But how do you kind of reconcile this contradiction or, or the, the fact that that Jesus kind of inverts so many of our expectations um, of, of what that hierarchy actually looks like? Well, I think uh, he did change the perceived order in some way but always ordering it to there's no doubt that God is the, is the pinnacle of this um, and so with regard, with regard to Sunday best um, I think the the goal here is to dress, what, what, however, however we decide this is going to be is to dress in such a way that it indicates respect for God this is, this is what and most importantly, so that I know I'm doing that. And it's, so the idea is not that it allows me then to look at shabbily dressed Charlie Diced at Mass <laughs> and say, go and get a shave and put a tie on or something. Um, that, that, that then is my problem if I'm, if I'm thinking like that. Mm. Um, that's very important. It, it, but it is saying to me, are you dressing in such a way that you, you're, you, for someone that you respect... And so that doesn't automatically mean shirt and tie. In Britain, in the 1980s, it probably did. In California, for example, I, I go to, if I go to church, and it, it can be very hot sometimes, and it's just impractical to wear the, 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 the sort of tweeds that you would wear. In England. Just, you know, you, you have to <clears throat> think about that. And then also, um, the goal is not ostentatious display. So it's not for me to wear the most expensive things I possibly can in order to demonstrate to others that I'm wealthy. Um, and I think that the, the, the way around this is um, clearly somebody who's given to envy, if I'm dressing smartly, might 
uh, might look enviously at what I have. Although I have to say, in America, I don't think, you know, most people can afford clothes that look pretty smart if they want to. This Mm -hmm. is, it's not about uh, people being able to afford clothes, I don't think. If we were somewhere else, it might be. But uh, in America or in Britain, I don't really think that's an issue. Anyone could put on a jacket and tie, I think, if they felt that that was appropriate. Um, But the, it really is about me demonstrating uh, respect to God. Now, if in the process of that, my actions and the way I treat others at church are not in accordance with that, and don't, and I don't respect others as well, then um, it will come across in the wrong way because I have to be the person that I, that um, that Christ wants me to be. So I think the answer to me is both and. It's it's to dress well, appropriately. Um, as an outward sign, I think it does have an impact. But at the same time, that isn't enough. I've got to be respectful of God in the way that I worship. And again, not ostentatiously. It's got to be something that comes from the heart and therefore uh, deriving from this, respectful to others around me. So if anybody, uh, if I am let giving out signals that I don't respect others, then that's my problem. It's something... It, uh, but it shouldn't be an argument against trying, against doing it altogether, I think. Yeah. Uh, well, I, I just had to sort of be a bit iconoclastic. <laughs> uh, again, an iconoclast, just being someone who uh, attacks cherished beliefs or institutions. But we, we learned uh, today that an iconoclast was originally someone who uh, attacked the use of sacred art. David, do you have any closing comments? Um, I don't think so, other than uh, where you where Sunday best. <laughs> All right. Thank you, David. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org. And if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com. <laughs>